0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark. And I am joined by our regulars, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Notes from the Middle Ground. Bill Galston of the Wall Street Journal and the Brookings Institution, Linda Chavez, who is of the Niskanen Center, and our special guest this week, Chris Saliza, who writes the Substack newsletter, So What? I want to welcome everyone and mention that this podcast is being brought to you by BetterHelp. First topic... That I'd like to address today is one that you, Chris, have outlined in your great Substack, namely the special election in New York Mm. that was supposed to be neck and neck. The polling suggested, and of course, in these kinds of races, polling is never quite that great. Nobody's got the money to pay for expensive pollings, but it was suggesting, you know, that they were basically neck and neck. And what happened was you had Tom Swazi, the Democrat, win by eight points. So you wrote a piece about what we should and shouldn't take away from this. What do you think are the things that it does teach us? Yeah, start
1: here. This is a really intricate political science point. Winning in politics is better than losing in politics, right? So, (laughs) Really intricate point. Yes, thank you, yes. Years of study have led me to that conclusion. Yes. So I always say when the side that does not win says it doesn't matter, I mean, the truth is, of course they would rather be on the other side. It, It is a seat that was held by Republicans. Yes, it was George Santos, who everybody knows, but it was a seat that was held by Republicans and now is held by Democrats. That is a switch and in a very small majority That is a pretty big deal. So I think it shows again that Democrats are, at a minimum, very good at turning out their base in special elections. We've seen this over and over again, whether it's a House election, a Supreme Court election, a state House election, special elections over the last three or four years, Democrats have consistently overperformed. Now, the question then becomes, okay, well, does that mean that a poll that comes out that shows Donald Trump at 47 and Joe Biden at 43, does that mean we shouldn't believe that poll? Because when rubber meets road, Democrats are doing better than Republicans. To me, it's two very different things, right? This was a special election on Long Island on a day that it snowed with one candidate, Tom Swazi, who had represented the district for six years. And prior to that had been a County executive for, you know, a number of years before that against someone that even Republican, a former Democrat who even Republicans admitted didn't really appear in public and no one knew. We always want it to be all or nothing. You know, it's either deeply meaningful or not meaningful at all. And I think the truth usually is sort of in between there. And I think the truth here is Republicans very much would have liked to win. I think in losing, uh, Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, takes a little bit of hit. I think Elise Stefanik's VP bid, she's from New York, takes a little bit of of a hit. But does this mean that Donald Trump is definitely going to lose to Joe Biden no matter what the polls say? No, I don't think so.
0: Damon, Chris mentions that she wasn't very well-known and she didn't make very many campaign appearances. And you have to wonder whether... A district that had been hoodwinked just recently by George Santos might have been a little wary of taking a flyer on a less well-known candidate this time around. Who knows how much that may have played into
2: this? Um, The specifics of this race, it doesn't surprise me hugely that it turned out the way it did because of what you said. When you've just come out of this massive humiliation of having George Santos as be your representative, uh, you know, it can take the wind out of your sails when it comes (laughs) to, uh, you know, vote mobilization efforts. But then there's the bigger structural change, which has happened between the parties in recent years, which is that... Voters tend to vote more when they are highly educated, highly engaged, they pay attention to what's going on and they feel the stakes are high. Now, Republicans think stakes are high in our politics, but they are progressively, from election to election, A little bit more, the electorate on the right is composed of voters who have not graduated from college, who are not as focused on politics in its day-to-day intricacies, which means that when it comes to an off-year election or a special election or something like like this election on Long Island, they are going to be a little bit less likely to be motivated to show up. And so that consistently gives Democrats an edge because the Democratic electorate at the same time, as you would expect, is going in the opposite direction, more highly educated, more engaged, and then highly alarmed by the Trumpian drift of the Republican Party. So those people definitely show up. And of course, Dobbs really motivates Democratic voters. So I think that if we're going to try to extrapolate a lesson for November, it would be simply this. Are Democrats going to be motivated to vote? You bet they're going to be motivated to vote. The only difference is that when Donald Trump is at the head of the ticket and it's the presidential race, Republicans will also be motivated to vote then if in no other intervening special election that might come on the scene. So, you know, does that mean one or the other is guaranteed to be ahead? No, but I think it's going to be much more even in the intense drive to get the masses out to the ballot places.
0: Bill Galston, the newspaper to which you contribute, The Wall Street Journal, their editorial had a, um, a, what I thought was a good line, where they said, Donald Trump, in typical fashion, showed up after the election to shoot the wounded (laughs) and said the problem was, of course, that Ms. Pillip did not hug him close enough and that if she had done so, she would have won.
3: What's your analysis of the race? First of all, there is absolutely no evidence to... Uh, support Donald Trump's assertion, which makes his assertion this time consistent with almost all of his previous assertions. Yes. But moving on to the race, there are two things I want to say about this race as a leading indicator for the general election, or maybe three things. Number one, in the 2020 general election, 370,000 people roughly showed up to vote in this district. In this special, 170,000 showed up to vote, and there is no reason to believe that 170 is a faithful macrocosm of the 370. This is just another way to reinforce the point the point that Damon made. Secondly, if you compare the within-the-Siena poll findings for Tom Swasey on the one hand and Joe Biden on the other, You'll find, first of all, that the poll had Swazi leading Philip by four, Joe Biden trailing Donald Trump by five, 47, 47 to 42. That is a consequential difference, especially when you consider that Biden won New York three by eight points in 2020. So on the face of it, that's a negative swing of 15 points. What are the differences? between Swazi supporters and Biden's smaller group of supporters. Biden is weaker among independent voters, moderate voters, and especially Catholics. So here's Joe Biden, a devout Catholic, losing to Donald Trump, who's been accused of being many things but never a devout Catholic, losing Catholics by 25 percentage points. This is worth paying attention to. So I believe the differences between the Swazi findings and the Biden findings because they track, they're not spread evenly across the board. They track chunks of the electorate. Point number three, and everybody's made this point. I want to underscore it. Swazi won by doing something that Biden has not yet steeled himself to do. That is to support a really tough immigration policy. Swazi blunted the issue by calling on Joe Biden to shut the border. So it would be interesting to see how Bi- how Biden does against Trump a month after he announces that he's following Tom Swazi's advice. But I'm not holding my breath.
0: Well, Linda, I was going to ask you about the immigration angle here. and uh, But also, I just want to, before we get into it vis-a-vis this particular district in New York, I just want to ask you if you happen to see Catherine Rampell's piece in the Washington Post this week where she talked about all of the benefits of immigration for our economy and, you know, $7 trillion infusion of net worth in our economy based on immigration. Anyway, it was it was a good reminder that even at this moment of maximum nativism and hostility to immigration, which is understandable because the border really is kind of is chaotic. It is important to keep in mind that immigration is still a good thing. So let's get back to New York, though, because... As Bill said, um, Swazi decided not to sleep on this issue. He jumped in and confronted it directly. And he cited the fact that his opponent, the the Republican, said that she would have voted against the deal that uh, was proposed on Capitol Hill. And he held her feet to the fire and said that was the best deal you could possibly have and, you know, and so on and made her seem like the obstructionist and so
4: What did you make of that? Well, first of all, let me just say you stole my highlight of the week. I still may use it when we get there. It wasn't the red (laughs) pill column, but the CBO uh, finding. But look, I think Swazi did offer a blueprint for Democrats on the immigration issue. And while Bill and I don't see entirely eye to eye, I absolutely concede that immigration is an issue with Democrats, not just with Republicans. And part of that was that the trick that Republicans used to move a whole bunch of uh, asylum seekers and others to cities like New York City worked. It made people concerned. And because those asylum seekers are not allowed to work For at least 180 days, it means that they are a burden on the places where they're sent. So it did work. But I do think it's important to note exactly what you said, Mona. And that is that the bill that was offered in the Senate, the one that was negotiated by Jim Lankford, who is, by the way, one of, I think, the either the most conservative or the second most conservative uh, senator in the United States Senate, the one that he helped negotiate, was a tough bill that, in fact, would have changed asylum laws and, importantly, given President Biden the authority to close the border. And there are two things that go with that. First of all, in order to close the border, you're going to get Uh, lawsuits immediately when you try to do that. So having legislation that allows the president to do that when the flow is 5,000 per day or greater on average over a seven-day period or 8,500 a day uh, on a single day, that would in fact help uh, President Biden. But the second thing is, if Mexico won't take them back, and many of them are not, you know, from Mexico. Most of them are not from Mexico these days. Then you have to do something with them. And you know, everybody says, "Well, detain them. Detain them." Well, we learned from the Border Patrol this week. They're out of money. They don't have room for detention. Yep. And what would this bill that the Republicans voted down have done? It would have provided more money for detention. It would have created more beds. And so all of these things, I think, can be turned on the Republicans if, and I hear I agree with Bill, Joe Biden has to be willing to do it. He has to be willing to fashion a message, much like Swazi's message, that is tough on what's happening at the border, compassionate about people who have a legitimate claim to asylum. But by the way, the again, the bill would have provided that those claims could be adjudicated at the border. They didn't have to let people in and let them go all over the country. If that bill had passed, it would give Biden the tools. And that's exactly why the Republicans didn't want to pass it. They didn't want to pass it because it helps take away an issue. So he needs to have the, the will to do it. But he has to make it part of his message and needs to run commercials, just like Bill Clinton did back in your day, Bill, on welfare reform, because I saw those ads. They weren't always uh, running in in blue states, but when I visited my mother in New Mexico, Bill Clinton saying we need to reform welfare, ran regularly and helped him uh, win uh, voters that he might not otherwise have won.
0: So, Chris Eliza, do you think that Biden? Well, leaving us, we'll get to his age and all of that in another segment. But <laughs> he's older? But, I hadn't I wasn't y- y- familiar d- with that. Oh yeah, that was in the news. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but do you think that he could craft a message that is, you know, Republicans want me to break the law to deal with the border. I want to do it according to the law. How about that as a slogan? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm always hesitant to think that something that happens in February of 2024 will be on voters' minds in November of 2024, right? If, if I've learned one thing in covering politics, it's that voters are have pretty short memories, and particularly as it relates to legislation or failed legislation. That said, I mean, I do think there's an opportunity Here for Biden again, and Linda mentioned this, like, I don't think Joe Biden can say enough times a bipartisan deal that was struck by one of the most conservative Republicans in the Senate, as long with Chris Murphy from Connecticut, a Democrat that that would by any measure. And there are quote after quote after quote about this would be one of the most conservative immigration measures broadly spoken put in place in decades. I mean, the idea, like if George W. Bush proposed this, you'd be like, oh, this is a pretty conservative. It it is a remarkable thing. I was going to say how much the party has shifted to the right, but Damon's on uh, on with us. And I know he would rightly scold me because the truth of the matter is, yes, the party has shifted to the ideological right, broadly speaking, over a number of years. But in these cases, like the party has shifted Trump, right? It's not to the ideological right, it's just Trump, right? It's just, he doesn't like it. Yeah, Um, He doesn't think we should do this. You know, it was like when he was president and they would negotiate this big, you know, McConnell and they would negotiate this big budget deal. And at the last minute, Trump would put out a tweet and be like, I'm not sure if I like this. It was just his, when you are subject to the whims of one person as a stand-in for policy positions, which I think is effectively the case with the Republican Party now, it is a remarkable thing. I mean, even this is a sidebar, but I, I find it totally fascinating that Nikki Haley is, has been portrayed as a moderate rhino on, on, on anything, yeah. but certainly on immigration. I, I mean, there, there's no world in which Nikki Haley's views on immigration or candidly, almost anything else are moderate on a scale that any of us would use. And yet we're talking about it as though the race is between the conservative, Donald Trump, and the moderate, Nikki Haley. It's like, that's just not,
0: it's just not true. That is not the universe we're living in. You're absolutely right. And, um, you know, Republican rank and file voters are not shy, as I said in my piece today, about you know accusing their leaders of uh, selling them out, of being you know weak, need of being you know not strong, and you know that's been a constant theme that they have held it against Republicans of not achieving the goals that the base wants. Okay. And now the base really wants immigration reform. They really, really, really want it so, so much. And those darn Democrats and those darn never-Trump Republicans and others, rhinos, who won't give it to them. And this time, guess what? It was Donald Trump who wouldn't give it to them. And so they said, please, sir, may I have some more? I mean, it is really amazing. Well, anyway, okay, Bill, you wanted to get in here.
3: You've got a quibble, I think. It may be more than a quibble, but... I'll allow <laughs> you know, the rest of the panelists, and of course our audience, to judge. I view Linda as much more of an expert on immigration than I am, so I'd like to run this by her, if it's okay, Just you know, just to see. The Republican position, as you know, is that the president doesn't need legislation to shut the border because he already has the authority to do so. I got interested in that point, So I went to section 212F of the Immigration and Nationalization Act of 1952, and I found the following language. Uh, The president is authorized, and I quote, to suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens whose entry he finds would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. Okay, That seems like pretty sweeping language to me. Why wouldn't that statute, which has been on the books for nearly three quarters of a century, cover this issue? Does Joe Biden need legislation to shut the border?
4: Well, first of all, the immigration law is written in 1952, and the modifications that have made since, including modifications on asylum that were made, I believe, in 1980, do in fact Make limitations on that unless he can say that there is a national security emergency, which is why after 9/11 uh, he could shut down the border. You know, he could stop uh, people from coming in for a period of time. It's why under Title 42, the Public Health Act, he could stop people coming in who actually threaten the health because they might have COVID. But there have been subsequent court cases and lots of battles over what he can and cannot do. And even if he could, let's just hypothetically say that he could detain all the people that are intercepted at the border because he could detain asylum seekers. Although again, there's some court rulings that suggest he can't do that for an indefinite period, although it can be a longer period than most people would imagine. He's gotta have some place to put them. So, you know, there are constraints on him. And given the fact that even in fiscal year 2023, one million people were kicked out of the United States people who were encountered at the border, they were in fact sent back. Most of them now are being sent back under Title Eight, which is the broad authority over immigration. It covers what the president's authority are. And you're right, if there were some you know, national emergency, he might be able to invoke that. But barring something that everybody could agree on that was a national emergency, you would have all of the immigration advocacy groups, the ACLU and others in court two minutes after. uh, And my guess is you would have a stay. You would not be able to enforce that barring some sort of national emergency. So yes, he has broad authority. I mean, essentially that law gives the president, you know, huge authority uh, over immigration, but it is constrained by, by laws, um, other laws, including the asylum law and the way in which he does it and what he does with the people are also constrained by court cases. OK, this has been a great discussion. I
0: just want to close with one quick question for Chris, namely what this does to uh, Mike Johnson's majority. Is, is it, mm. So is it the case, it's, I read this and tell me if this is right, they had a vote to impeach Mayorkas. If that vote were held after next week when uh, Swazi yeah. takes off, he, they wouldn't yeah. be able to win that vote. Is that right?
1: That's right. It would be 214-214 and they would lose. A tie, tie, unlike in the Senate where the president of the Senate, who's the vice president, breaks ties. There is no tie breaker in the House. So if it's tied, you lose. If the 16 votes to elect, I think it was 16, 16 votes to elect Kevin McCarthy Speaker were not an indication. If the failures of Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan and all the other people who put their name, remember that period where everybody and their brother was putting their name forward yeah. and, you know, Tom, Tom Emmer was the speaker designate for 15 minutes before Donald Trump kiboshed him. If that didn't make it clear, then this should finally make clear that like there is simply no way to effectively run the Republican party in Congress. M- Mitch McConnell, who I think, whether you like him or hate him, has a demonstrated track record over many decades of keeping his party in line. Just look at what people said after the, yeah. the Ukraine aid vote. I mean, you have Ted Cruz saying, you know, that this guy doesn't know what he's doing. You have JD Vance, who who might be vice president, publicly criticizing McConnell. You know, you have the New York Times writing a story about how McConnell uh, McConnell's stance on this cost him, and he is weakening as a leader. I mean, there's just it is not a party that can be led by anyone other than the guy who is going to be the nominee and you know and the reason for that is because it's a cult of personality organized around that person Right. I mean, that's the it's hard to lead a party that is is not really in any traditional sense that we would define it, a political party.
0: It is not a political party. It may be group therapy, massive group therapy or uh, or pyramid scheme or something. But it it is not a political party because it doesn't care about actual issues and enacting policies that align with the voters wishes. Well, anyway, we'll talk about that more. But first, let me uh, say a few words about BetterHelp. During these cold winter months, it's possible to feel a little low, and so it might be time to think about giving yourself the gift of therapy. We all deal with stress in different ways. If you're like me, the news itself can be very disturbing. Some of us get headaches, others get stomach upset or insomnia, and so mental stress can really take a toll. And therapy can be incredibly helpful. It is not just for people with serious trauma or major illness. We all need a sympathetic, dispassionate listener, someone with experience and perspective who can reassure us that others have the same insecurities, doubts, and worries and have overcome them. Therapy helps us to figure out how our own minds may be holding us back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, BetterHelp is a great option. It's incredibly convenient because it's entirely online, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and get started. If that therapist is not a good fit, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. It is the gift that you give yourself. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash beg to differ today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash beg to differ. And we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. All right. While that was all going on, we also had a huge debate about whether we're going to continue to be a member of NATO. We saw Donald Trump say, do one of his, what we call sir stories. And you know, you know what a sir story is. It's, and they said to me, sir, they had these big generals, they had tears in their eyes. And they said, sir, you're the greatest man who has ever come into the presidency, blah, blah, blah. Those are the sir stories. I mean, it's a thing. If you, if you look at Donald Trump's history, it's amazing how he's always adds that they called me sir. You know, that's, that's, his own insecurity speaking. Anyway, the Sir story this past week was more disturbing than most because he made up this story, clearly made up, didn't really happen, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that he said what he said, which is that one of these, you know, leader of a big European country said to me, you mean if I don't pay my bills to NATO, then you're not gonna defend me if I'm attacked? And Trump said, yes, you don't pay your bills? You're derelict absolutely. I won't defend you. Not only that, I'll tell Putin that he, that he should do whatever the hell he wants. Naturally, Republican voters in the base probably don't even know he said it, and everyone else is <laughs> everyone else is losing their minds.
4: Linda, well, first of all, it's a call to tell if you're a poker player. Uh, it's something that you do when you're sort of, you know, it's like a nervous tick that you have, and it indicates what you're thinking or doing. And when he tells a lie, his tell is sir. So uh, I think we know that. Um, look, I think this was um, really disgraceful. I mean, you know, Mona, you and I both worked for Ronald Reagan. He is a uh, Literally like a swirling dervish in his, uh, in his grave now. He's got to be spinning in his grave. It's really unbelievable that uh, the Republican Party's leader has now come to the point when he is inviting Russia and the leader of Russia, Putin, who's a former KGB agent, to invade our allies You know, obviously he thinks it's just perfectly fine they invaded Ukraine. And of course, you know, one of the other new uh, faces of uh, the new Republican Party is Tucker Carlson, who was a week and a half ago or so over in Russia uh, interviewing Vladimir Putin. But this is very disturbing, and you wonder you know, what our allies are thinking, because obviously we're not coming up with the money for Ukraine that we promised and that they desperately need. And so if the Republican Party cannot be counted on to, you know, basically live up to our chapter uh, five or article five, rather, uh, obligations under NATO, then uh, it's, it's a whole different party. It, it's more than the isolationist party of the past because the Republican Party used to be isolationist, uh, became much less so under Reagan, under, under the two Bushes, uh, and certainly under the last Bush. But uh, this is a dramatic turn for the worse, and it makes the world a much less safe place. So, Damon,
0: of course... Trump has always just like he's always misunderstood tariffs you know he thinks that uh, foreigners pay tariffs whereas of course we citizens pay tariffs similarly um, he completely misconceives how NATO is organized there's there really isn't a kitty that we all contribute to it's how much of each government's budget they choose to spend on defense and there have been targets and so on and I mean there is a kitty it's small it's for you know things like offices and stuff like that but not for the main amount of NATO spending. So he gets that all wrong. And there are many, many other things that we could sort of fact check him on. But my question goes to what Linda just said, which is that NATO is a military alliance. But in order for a military alliance to have credibility, it relies on a psychological factor, which is not just how much of your budget do you spend on defense, but that when you say that an attack on one is an attack on all, you mean it. And if doubt is raised about that, about whether we mean it, then that destroys the alliance right there,
2: doesn't it? Yes, of course. Um, I mean, just briefly to your initial point about Trump, I don't know if he personally, I mean, he was president. You figure he he knows that he's lying, but, you know, maybe he forgot and he just believes his own demagogic lies. Uh, and so maybe he's now convinced that, in fact, NATO is a protection racket and it's actually that they're supposed to cough up, you know, a certain amount of money to us so that we'll come to their aid if someone bullies them around on the playground or something. But of course that isn't how it functions, as you said. It's 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 just promised targets for how much the members will spend of their GDP on their own defense. And that is a significant issue, but it has nothing to do with whether Article 5 will be enforced, let alone whether we should encourage a hostile power on the border of NATO to start invading, which he invited as a kind of rhetorical ploy and is incredibly dangerous. I mean, I it, in response to the second part of uh, what you said in queuing this up, Mona, I want to actually address something that that Linda said, which is comparing this to the isolationists of the 30s. And I actually want to say this is far worse. In the 30s, the United States had just helped bring World War I to an end. And as a result of that, we were more powerful than we had ever been. But we were still largely a regional power. And there was a lot of dissension in the country about whether we should be involved in European affairs or just kind of less them handle it and the isolationists of the time were in favor of letting it stay over there it's not our business we are today the most powerful nation on the planet and have been for decades we are involved everywhere in everything the entire network of security economic arrangements around the globe and it's not like we're now we have trump saying what we're going to do is stop time hang out on the the sidelines and decide, hmm, we're going to be involved here but not there and there but not here and going to do it that way. No, everything in foreign affairs begins from the present. And at the present, we are incredibly powerful and have a tremendous say in how the world works. And Trump to be trying to do this is making a case for positively Pulling back from that baseline. And every time you step back from that baseline, you create a vacuum that invites other powers to fill it. And so, it is far more ruinous to propose this kind of a strategy now. Now, people who've been listening to this podcast for a long time know that, you know, I was very much ambivalent about some of the global war on terror. I thought it was, in general, a good idea to pull back from Afghanistan, and we can agree or disagree about that. But my case has always been this has to be decided and thought about in a thoughtful, careful, strategic way where we prioritize and figure out where we want want to be and where we care a little bit less about what happens given rising rival powers, and that I still think is a legitimate issue, but it has absolutely nothing to do with what Donald Trump is doing here. He's trying to rip up the global order that we helped to build beginning at the end of World War II. And this is a five-alarm fire here, folks. I mean, I really—for him to insinuate this at a time where Putin is, I can guarantee you, looking at maps of the Baltics and figuring out— hmm, land bridge to our bases on the Baltic Sea through, through uh, Lithuania, or should it be Estonia maybe that we go into next? It's not going to be Poland, at least not right away. It's going to be the Baltics. They have strategic interests in making a, a big uh, mess up there. And he is guaranteed looking at that and thinking, if Trump's in, I think I'm golden. And that is on Trump. Bill, it isn't just
0: Trump. It's Trump in concert with trends that have been brewing on the right also for a while. So there have been these voices in the intellectual, so-called you know, intellectual nationalist types on the right. And you've written a lot. I know you've studied these people. But they are already actually casting doubt on the you know, rules-based international order that the U.S. inaugurated after World War II, They are highly skeptical about American power, which used to be the thing that sort of distinguished the left. But now it's very much a feature of the right. And Trump is um, inviting, as everyone has already said, he's inviting aggression. And you could sort of say, whatever you may think about American leadership in the world, would you like leadership by Russia, China, Iran better Because there isn't going to be an absent, isn't going to be that there isn't going to be a world leader. There will be. It's just a question of who.
3: Well, I think your question answers itself, Mona. But my colleague, Robert Kagan, with whom I've disagreed about many things, including the Iraq war, has made an observation recently that I think we all need to think about. And he points out, he's a, he's a diplomatic historian, among other things, and he points out that great foreign policy issues in American history have always involved conflicts in U.S. domestic policy. And the idea that wise men could get together in a room and resolve these issues taking nothing but the long-term interests of the United States into account and basically shutting the people out, doesn't work, has never worked. It doesn't work that way. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are the domestic developments that account for this profound transformation in the worldview of one of the two major and enduring political parties in the United States? And There, I think we can point to a series of mistakes by political elites of both political parties that have given credibility and vigor to the idea that the United States would be best served by retreating from the world. You see a microcosm of that argument in the debate over aid to Ukraine and how it is linked or not linked to the southern border. And the crudest way of putting it is, why are we spending so much money on the eastern border of Ukraine while neglecting the southern border of the United States? And tens of millions of people have been persuaded that what they think has gone wrong with the United States in the past 20 years is a function of spending money overseas that should have been spent here at home. It used to be Democrats who made that argument, you know, to oppose the B-1B bomber and a bunch of other things. Now it's Republicans. But we have to add, you know, rather than wringing our hands, obviously in the short term, we have to try to prevent Trump from destroying the network of alliances and attachments that Damon properly pointed to. But in the longer term, we all have to ask ourselves some hard questions about why international engagement has lost credibility, has lost desirability, has lost urgency for so many million Americans. We have to attend to the domestic foundations of international engagement. And if we don't do that, we're going to be having this conversation in five years and 10 years and 20 years, and it won't look any better.
0: Chris, this is um, in a sense a perennial problem though. And it does come down to poor leadership. I mean, Polls show that people, when you set up side by side, you know, how much people think we are spending on foreign aid, you know, versus how much we actually spend on foreign aid, you know, people imagine that it's like 35, 40% of our federal budget going to foreign aid, when of course it's less than 1%. Yes. I don't know. I mean, I guess you could say, where did people get the thought that? that we're spending more on uh, on international aid than we are on our own southern border? Well, partly it's because they're being lied to. More than that. I mean, you, you do have to have control of your borders. You can't have a sense of chaos and all that. So that's that's right. So comment on that if you want, but I'd also just love to get your reaction because there, there was one silver lining in all this this week. All right, you you answer that first, and then I'll get to the silver lining. All I was going to do, Mona, honestly, was
1: recommend my former boss who employed me throughout college, George F. Will, <laughs> wrote, wrote a, and I've been a little bit critical of him at times in that I, I think he... <laughs> He both pines and believes in a Republican Party that no longer exists. Yeah, I know. Um, it's you true. know, But 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 I did think to your point about Ukraine. I thought he wrote a really nice piece. I never know. I always say today. I never really know when it ran. I saw it online today. Me too. I'm not yeah. a print newspaper consumer. But I would urge people to read that because I think he does a really good job of exactly your point, Mona, which is contextualizing that in truth. I, This is a crude metaphor, but it is a pretty cheap date to destabilize Russia via the money that we are spending in Ukraine compared to everything that we spend. And I think people do not grasp that. I want to make one other quick point. It is remarkable to me that, yes, uh, 29, I believe, Republican senators voted against the Ukraine, uh, Ukraine aid package, but it passed with 70. It is a remarkable thing to me, just having watched the House and Senate and how they interact, that a bill that would pass with 70 senators would be met with a Heisman, right? A don't come here by the Speaker of the House who simply believes he does not have the political capital, the political wherewithal, the ability to lead to say or or, or the support of his conference to say, yes, this is an important thing that we have to do. I mean, Mike, jo- uh, you know, Mike Johnson's effectively said like, well, it's dead on arrival. We're not going to do anything. I mean, this is not something that passed with 51 votes. I mean, there's not that many things outside of naming non-controversial things to get 70 plus votes. And yet again, I just keep coming back. I mean, I'm writing about this, but I do keep coming back to it is impossible to be a party leader in a party that lacks leadership or policies. Right, in a party that is just about one person. We didn't talk about this, but look at there are four committee chairmen, four full committee chairmen on the Republican side, Mark Green from Tennessee being the most recent, who are retiring. If young Chris Eliza working at Roll Call newspaper 25 years ago, they would never do that. Uh, Mike Gallagher, 39 year old Marine, recruited for the Senate, he's retiring. You know, he's seen this as huge rising star. He's retiring because he has a primary challenge from a guy who was a Donald Trump consultant because he didn't vote to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas on principle. Like, yeah. I mean, it's I know not everyone's watching the video, but it's mind blowing. Yeah, like it really is. And I, I just think everything because uh, Bill mentioned this, it, you can't talk about foreign policy without talking about, about, I think, domestic politics and policy. And to me, the, the lack of sort of any leaders, there is no one. There is Trump. And then it goes, there is no one, there is no Mitch McConnell, there is no Mike Johnson, there is no Paul Ryan, there is no Mitt Romney, right? there's just no middle class. It's just rank and file, and those people are the people who get in line behind Trump.
0: <sighs> yes,
1: All right, let us... Sorry, that was
0: depressing. That was uh, very accurate. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let us uh, move on to our third topic, also not a happy one. So when we were last gathered together at the very end of the podcast, Damon informed us about the Robert Herr special counsel report that, uh, you know, said that the president was confused and doddering. And uh, so, of course, we've had a full week since then of commentary and so on at some of it hair on fire. And Damon, you wrote a piece for the Atlantic where you said, "Okay, the Democrats should dump Joe Biden." So, make your
2: case. Well, I mean, it is a contribution to punditry and it's supposed to be starting a debate and a conversation and it seems to have contributed to that. So, I'm happy about it. My case is is really Nothing more than bringing some very widely known polling data kind of to the conversation and pointing out that, for example, 76% of Americans and half of Democrats, according to an NBC poll from just before the Her report came out, say that they are not convinced that Biden is up to the job of being president, both because of age and his uh, energy levels and so forth. So I wanted to kind of point that out, that it is not that we can just blame Robert Herr for throwing Biden under the bus, that this has actually been a problem for a long time, and he's just feeding into this widely shared conviction. And then I also wanted to highlight his approval rating, which is, you know, bouncing around between 38 and 39 percent. It's been extremely steady with a very long term slow drift downward over time. It stays within a fairly narrow band, but then over the course of months slowly gets lower. And that if you compare his approval rating to the approval rating of other presidents at this time in their presidency heading into a re-election fight. He's not doing well. Uh, I mean, I point out that he's uh, roughly five points behind where Trump was four years ago before Trump lost, 10 points behind Barack Obama at this point, 13 points behind George W. Bush at this point, and six points behind the first George Bush, who, of course, went on to lose. So given all of this, I simply wanted to say, hey, I get being risk averse. And is it risky to say we should dump Biden at this incredibly late date when it's too late to even have a competitive primary? Absolutely. But let's be honest, folks. It is also risky to go forward with a candidate hampered by these kinds of numbers. So... Obviously, you know, like I I talk about some people who I think would maybe be better candidates. You can come up with arguments on the other side of, of all of those and we can talk about them if you want. Um, and, And what I'm proposing is effectively an open convention, basically Biden dropping out in the next month or two, saying his committed delegates are freed up to vote for whoever they want at the convention. And then a series of votes on the convention floor going on through the night and into the next day, the biggest ratings bonanza for a convention in decades as the country waits on pins and needles to see who prevails as the consensus. And then that will be, Uh, the candidate going in to face Trump. And would that person be hampered by that process? Uh, You know, I don't know. It'd be messy. It sure would be drama. Um, But frankly, given Biden's numbers, I'm not entirely convinced that the end result by like late September and October, once that's been digested and processed in the electorate, would be that much different. Would that person be below 38%? Uh, approval and and actually slightly behind Biden, uh, slightly behind Trump as Biden is right now in head-to-head polls, uh, I, maybe. But I, I'm just as likely to think maybe they'd be a little ahead. Maybe maybe it would shake things up in a positive way. So that's been my contribution to the body politic this week. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you, Damon. Okay, Linda. So in Damon's thought experiment, he didn't grapple with one thing, which is the Kamala Harris. Issue, And that is a big deal. The idea that we would have a free, rip-roaring contest for the nomination within the Democratic Party, assuming a Biden withdrawal, assumes that people would be willing to run against the first African-American female vice president. In the Democratic Party, it's hard to see that that would actually come to pass. The most important voting constituency in the Democratic Party, in you know, in primaries, is Black women. And uh, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, it's it's nice to fantasize about you know Josh Shapiro or Gretchen Whitmer or you know even uh, Warnock. You know, although I'm not crazy about him. But anyway, there are others, the people who you know, throw out names. But wouldn't it be Kamala Harris, whose
4: ratings, whose popularity is even lower than President Biden's? All right. So while Damon was writing his Atlantic uh, article, uh, I was busy surveying some of my former union friends, people who held high-ranking positions in labor unions around the country uh, this last week. And lo and behold, one who uh, really surprised me came up with a scenario somewhat different than Damon's in an important way. And that is not for Biden to step aside now. I think that would be kind of a bloody mess. His suggestion was that he step aside, you know, on the first day of the convention, health emergency, something. Uh, It would also require that Kamala Harris decide that she didn't want to buy, or even if she did want to buy, it would require some smoke-filled rooms, or if not smoke-filled rooms, uh, I don't know, uh, tea-filled rooms or whatever it is the Democrats <laughs> do uh, for enjoyment. Uh, maybe some pot-filled rooms, I'm not sure. And it would require the the delegates who were there to pick the uh, person. Now, If Kamala Harris were to assume the number one spot, she would lose, I think, overwhelmingly uh, to Trump. I've said on the show before that I really think that, you know, there used to be a time when even Al Gore put the good of the country before his own good in the way he accepted the Supreme Court ruling uh, that came down involving uh, Florida in 2000. Please, someone try to get to Kamala Harris and say, put the country first. Maybe she could even stay on the ticket as vice president, but they've got to come up uh, with somebody at the top. And uh, Andy Beshear is somebody I keep uh, pushing. I think it's got to be a governor. Maybe Gavin Newsom from California. He may be too liberal, but I don't know. I've heard him on uh, the Bill Maher show recently and sound all that liberal. He's been on Fox News trying to make a pitch uh, for the Fox news audience. So I do think
0: that- I'm sorry, Linda, anybody who is, <laughs> who was
4: formerly married I know. to Don Jr.'s girlfriend is out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I agree. I <laughs> agree that that really isn't disqualifying, but I it's in the constitution, Mona, I'm not sure. <laughs> it it needs to now. be. It probably needs to be. I'll, I'll start a campaign with you for that. But I really okay. do think that, um, for the good of the country, it would be better for Biden not, not to be at the head. It isn't. I and mean, he is really diminished. Uh, you watch him walk. They keep talking about his stiff gait. I'm sorry, that shuffle looks more than a stiff gait. Uh, yes, he confuses names on this program last week. I talked about amnesty when I'm in asylum. So when we get up in years, sometimes we do substitute the wrong word. But it's more than that. He doesn't have the vigor. And while I think it's true that if you look to his accomplishments as president, those accomplishments do take his leadership, but they say a lot more about the people around him uh, and his deferring uh, to, to them. I think he's just not, you know, most Americans have made up their minds that he is too old to be president. I think... Donald Trump is too old to be president and shows clear signs of dementia but um, you know the Republican Party seems to want to stick with him so
0: Meanwhile Bill Galston Joe Manchin is already auditioning vice presidential picks. did you see that? He said he was you know he would look kindly on Mitt Romney running on a ticket with him So what? well if if there's a third party this time what do you mean
3: if we already have a proliferation, of third party and independent candidates. And I can pretty much guarantee you that because of name recognition and a cornucopia of money that shows no signs of ending, RFK's existing campaign is gonna be much more significant than any ticket Joe Manchin can put together.
0: Except that RFK would probably take
3: votes from Trump. Well, uh, I've looked at all of the surveys Comparing you know the two way to the five way, and all of those surveys work to Biden's disadvantage. Okay, so what about the Damon Linker dump Biden campaign? Uh, You know, when (laughs) I was a boy, I loved science fiction. We're in the realm of human psychology now, and you know you can argue on the one hand, well, he ought to step down for the good of the country, Uh, and. if I were more confident that the process Damon outlined would lead to a stronger Democratic candidate in the general election, I might back it as a sort of a, you know, a moral proposition. You owe it to the country, Mr. President. But as a realistic depiction of what a man who has sought the presidency since 1988 is going to do, uh, I think it is fanciful. And the older I get, and I'm not saying this is a virtue, but simply a self-description, the older I get, the more I take my bearings about what I think is possible, as opposed to what I think might be desirable. Uh, Would I like to wave a magic wand and bring Damon's scenario into existence? I'd consider waving that wand. But do I think it's going to happen? I think the only thing that reshuffles the deck for the Democratic Party is a serious and disqualifying health emergency for the sitting president of the United States. I'm not rooting for that. I'm just stating it as a matter of fact. That's my assessment that the only thing that can change this picture is that. So we can amuse ourselves, but I don't
2: think we're really describing it. Can I just add uh, just add real quick that um, I, I originally wrote this piece at a, like 2,000-word length for my substack, and then The Atlantic asked me to redo it at half the length. So I honestly don't remember which was in which piece. But in the original, I think, I— did talk concretely about how this could happen. And of course it is fanciful, but it wasn't just waving a magic wand. It was Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Chuck Schumer, and anyone else prominent in the party you can think of going to Biden behind the scenes, sitting down with him and saying, look, Mr. President, you have served your country. You dispatched Donald Trump. Congratulations. But these are your numbers and we need you to do the ultimate sacrifice of your political career for the sake of the country. Would he say, get the hell out of here? And yeah, probably, but you never know. You know That's look, all. you never, you never know. That's the
3: old Barry Goldwater delegation visiting Richard Nixon scenario. Here's the problem: let's start with Barack Obama. The guy who told Joe Biden at the end of eight years of faithful service as vice president that he, Barack Obama, would not support him not only for the Democratic nomination, and not only that, he was going to endorse the other choice. And this is the guy who's going to tell Joe Biden to stand down? I don't think so. Uh, That's a good point. Uh, um, Okay,
0: Chris, another aspect of this I wonder if you could comment on, which is, you know, there has not been, I, I think for my entire life that I've been following political conventions, the guys who report on them, the political reporters, have always said, "Yep, yeah, we could have a brokered convention," and they were always so excited <laughs> because a brokered yeah. convention is like the dream of every journalist. You know, so many you know great stories and drama. It hasn't happened for my whole lifetime, and I've been around a long time. In the in the scenario of a broker, uh, not a brokered, but a but but a contested convention, mm-hmm. would there even be the muscle memory? in the delegates to even know how to do such a thing in our time.
1: Yeah. I will admit as a and I put myself firmly in this category. It is a political nerd fantasy of the first sort. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, like yeah, it goes right along with I feel like that one and well, what if the electoral college tied 269 yes, to yes. 269? Like those are the <laughs> they're both like Exactly. Those are the two. I find myself, you know, embarrassingly often agreeing almost entirely with Damon, you know, I know you you want to disagree sometimes, but, but (laughs) like most of what Damon writes, I'm like, damn, I wish I had thought of that. And, and what he says. And so what I think that would be interesting about it is I think, so the reason that conventions are no longer, you know, what they were, I'm trying to, you know, 60, 70 years ago is because the party decided anything that looks like chaos or lack of order is bad, right? This is a television event and we want to project unity and they can't even imagine that the person who is is the nominee, that it could ever be anyone else, right? Everything, the three days are all geared to that, which makes it, from a journalistic point of view, totally worthless. I sort of am on the Damon side of this in that, well, I'm with Bill. I don't think it's going to happen. Let me say that. But I'm on the Damon side of, I'm not 100% convinced that, let's say Joe Biden had to bow out for some sort of health issue. I'm not convinced that a contested convention, right. In, in which there are multiple options would fundamentally hamstring the eventual nominee. First of all, I don't think people pay, you know, I think people, you know, start paying attention a month about before the election. I don't think they pay that much attention. They pay more obviously to a contested convention, but just not sold on it. It's the same argument that always goes that, well, we should never have any primary races because all primaries do is divert attention and resources away from the general election. And I would argue, you know, primaries are actually probably a pretty good thing, generally speaking, in that it forces candidates to run for things. This 2024 Republican primary being a little bit of an exception because it's not really a primary, but I think primaries can be a good thing. I don't think you should avoid them. And and for the same reason, like I'm not totally convinced that If they had a convention at which there were multiple people putting their names forward and they eventually settled on one that by October 15th, we would say, oh, man, that that really doomed Democrats. It seems to me like, you know, you could nominate this coffee cup. Uh, It's tea, but you can nominate this teacup as a Democratic nominee. And today that teacup would get 48 percent of the vote. Like I just don't there there does there seems to me such small margins. It's not as though there's something is going to happen. I don't think between now and the election where we're going to have a 60, 40 election, no matter who the Republican Democratic nominees or even a 55, 45 election. So I tend to think we overblow how much that can matter.
0: Okay, well, let's leave that there for this week, and uh, we will move on to our highlights of the, or lowlights of the week. But first, a word about Babel. One in five Americans have learn a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year that you finally check it off. You don't need to pay hundreds of dollars for a private tutor or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's tools and tips are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. And they cater to your learning style. If you're mostly visual, you can do it all on just visual cues. If you're auditory, you can listen and then repeat, and the accents are very good, I must say. So it really helps. And plus, it provides really practical speaking guidance. So it's think of it in terms of like, if you're planning a vacation to another country, and you want to be able to at least converse a little bit in a restaurant or whatever, you may not even want to completely immerse yourself and be reading their great literature overnight. But you just want to be able to converse in a, 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 you know, as a tourist you can do that with Babbel, and uh, you can do it really, really fast. So here is a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription. It's only for our listeners at babbel.com slash differ. So you get 50% off at babbel.com slash differ. It is spelled B-A-B-B-E-L. Dot com and then slash beg to differ. Rules and restrictions may apply, and we thank them for sponsoring beg to differ. All right, we now go to our highlight or lowlight of the week, and we will start with Bill Galston.
3: Well, this week I'm going to be what the you know so the Stalinists in the Soviet Union called a stakhanovite, you know, because I'm going to offer both a highlight and a lowlight. Let me start with the low light. We've talked on on this show more than once about Donald Trump's uh, threat, uh, which he articulated last week to uh, not defend uh, NATO allies that he referred to as deadbeats, uh, and even to invite uh, Vladimir Putin to attack them. Well, Donald Trump had six days to reflect on this criticism. And then last night, that is Wednesday night before this show was taped on Thursday, he decided that he was right all along. And so he doubled down. uh, And he cleaned up the language about Vladimir Putin a little bit. Uh, But he repeated that if NATO allies he regards as deadbeats didn't quote unquote pay up, he wouldn't defend them. Which amounts to withdrawing from NATO, by the way because it is to reject the obligation of Article Five, collective defense, which is the heart of the NATO charter and of the operational meaning of the organization itself. Speaking of Vladimir Putin, that leads me to a rare highlight featuring Mr. Putin. I'm referring, of course, to Mr. Putin's contemptuous dismissal of Tucker Carlson as a weak journalist who didn't have the guts to challenge him, and therefore, Putin said, it was, from that standpoint, an unsatisfactory interview. I cannot tell you how much satisfaction I have derived from Vladimir Putin's depiction of Tucker Carlson. It is the first moment of truth that I've heard from Russia's president in years. (laughs) Excellent. I'm glad I didn't mention it earlier. I was
0: going to bring it up and uh, I'm glad that I didn't. That was indeed a highlight. And Tucker Carlson is being more of a useful idiot than on behalf of Putin than anybody I wrote about in my 2003 book by that title. Okay, Damon Linker.
2: Well, my choice this week actually is a highlight, and it actually appears in uh, the American Conservative magazine. And, you know, I didn't expect to be saying those words. Um, this is actually a, an essay by a guy named Nate Hochman, who's a, a young conservative. Um, he's about 25 or so years old. Uh, he uh, got some headlines because uh, he was hired uh, after... Doing his time at places like the Claremont Institute and National Review, he was hired by the DeSantis campaign in the communications shop and ended up uh, having to, uh, uh, well, he was pushed out when the campaign, you know, tried to cut spending. But uh, that campaign spending cut was tied also to very bad press that came about because the communication shop where this guy worked put out uh, this video filled with right-wing memes, including the sun and rod, a kind of Nazi symbol included with DeSantis in it. And now Hawkman has denied that he made the ad and that he was directly involved in it, but he was he was in the right office, we will say, where that was created. So since then, he's sort of been on the outs on the right, uh, doing various freelancing stuff, and he has now written this essay for the American Conservative that's very interesting titled What I Saw Inside the DeSantis Campaign. I recommend it to, to listeners if you're interested in the right and what it's become. He basically gives a, a view that DeSantis was too much of a policy wonk. He just wanted to kind of be a pragmatist and fix little problems here and there, but he had no vision. The reason why DeSantis was cleaned up and you know put out to dry by the successful Trump campaign is that Trump has a vision. He connects spiritually with his voters, and this shows where the right needs to go. Now, I, I actually, I, I engage with Hawkman. And on uh, Twitter X uh, sometimes. And so I, I responded to this and and said to him the other day, like, Well, like, you know, I I have to say, you know, you're going to say I'm engaging in, you know, reductio at Hitlerum, but like, this sounds very Weimar Republic. Like, we need a right-wing leader to connect with the the masses, the folk, one might say, uh, in order, you know, with their spiritual uh, longings and so forth. And he immediately came back, oh, people do this all the time. Biden says he's fighting for the soul of America. That's all I'm saying. So I'm going to write something about this probably next week. But it is an interesting inside take of the campaign in a very kind of sublimated way. There's not a lot of like gossip in it. But this is how he viewed the experience of working there and his own account of why DeSantis failed. So much food for thought in that. And, uh, you know, Hawkman's an interesting guy, even if I think he's wrong about pretty much everything he says.
4: <laughs> Thanks, Damon. Linda? Well, I'm just trying to recover from the shock of uh, Damon <laughs> <laughs> using a piece of the American Conservative. Um, I am going to go back to my highlight, which uh, unfortunately, since we've been on you know, camera the whole time, I couldn't be furiously searching for something else. So I am going to go back, not so much uh, to the Catherine Rampell column in the Washington Post, but rather to the report itself of the Congressional Budget Office. Because I think it's really important for people to understand how important an inflow of new workers is into our economy. And, you know, if you look at sluggish growth in the U.S. over the last... uh, few years. Obviously, a lot of it had to do with the pandemic, but it also had to do with the fact that we weren't in bringing in new people to assume jobs. And what the Congressional Budget Office did was to project out what uh, the influx of new people into our country uh, over the last year will mean going forward. So what they determined was that the 5.2 million job growth uh, that was experienced in, in, I think it was 2022, was almost in, entirely, or at least it was in large part because of immigrants coming into the labor force. And that if you project that out, you're going to see over the next 10 years, $7 trillion in growth in the GDP in the U.S. economy trillion in more revenue coming in. This is gonna help our deficits, it's gonna mean that we're a vibrant economy, but I think it's also important to know these were not legal immigrants, all of them, who came in. Now, some of them, asylum seekers, after 180 days may end up getting work permits, so they are legally here, but a lot of those people who come in are not legally here, but they still contribute. And because they often end up, through their employers, paying Social Security tax, they actually pay into the system and won't be able to take out of the system uh, come their retirement age. So I just think this is important to remember. And, you know, I'll agree with Bill here that it's, it is the chaos at the border is a win for Republicans unless Democrats uh, can turn that around. But all of those people coming in are not a bad thing. Uh, they actually work and redound to the benefit of Americans already living here.
0: Yes. Amen. Not only that, they create jobs. They do. That's the other thing that, that people yep. always forget to say about immigrants. They create jobs. They don't just take right. jobs. That's uh, or, mostly or fill, what they you know, do fill it. Fill it. is create jobs. They create businesses and so on. So it's really, um, it's a complicated picture and, and you've laid it out really well, Linda. Okay. Chris Saliza.
1: Okay. I'm going to be brief. I write on post-it notes stuff that I want to write in the future. So for people watching on this post-it note, I have written two words, Lindsey Graham. Okay, so uh, that it doesn't really need much more explanation, but I will explain it slightly more. This is my low light. Sorry. I think everyone, well, Bill offered a highlight and a low light and everyone else did a highlight. I'll go with a low light. Look. Lindsey Graham has effectively is effectively unrecognizable from the Lindsey Graham, who was a surrogate for John McCain in the 2008 campaign. The last thing that was sort of the last vestige of that Lindsey Graham was his hawkishness on foreign policy and aid and Ukraine in particular. Well, this week. He said he was going to vote against and did vote against the Ukraine bill, $95 billion in in, in money for Ukraine, uh, because number one, stop me if you've heard this before, we have to secure our southern border, <laughs> Donald Trump. And number two, it should be given in the form of a loan, also a Donald Trump idea. I, I, I will turn this into a highlight in that I will recommend to people, if you have not read William Salatan's piece, it's a series of pieces on the corruption or whatever word he uses, the, the, um, the metamorphosis of Lindsey Graham, I would recommend it, but it is remarkable to me in 15 years, Lindsey, he is, he is almost entirely unrecognizable from a policy perspective from what he was. And, and you know, he gave a famous interview to Mark Leibovich, who I think at the time was at either the New York Times or the Atlantic, I can't remember, in which he explained himself by saying, I go where the attention is. I go where the power is. And that really says it all. Yeah.
0: You know, uh, Will Salatin and I do a podcast uh, for Bulwark Plus members, and uh, this came up when, on our podcast this week. The series of articles that Will wrote, The Corruption of Lindsey Graham, is available in book form from Kindle. And you can I think you can find it also on the Bulwark website. It's fantastic. But anyway, Will was pointing out that one of the things that Lindsey Graham said... Uh, when he was surrendering to Trump on all these other issues was that, well, yes, I have to give up my views on X, Y, and Z because this gives me access. And with that access, yep. I will argue yep. for my, you know, vigorous foreign policy, American strength abroad, et cetera. That's the price I had to pay. And of course, we, as we now see, I mean, even that is out the window. It was never about that. It was always about Lindsey Graham being- a senator and being Power. where the action is. That's right. Power, yeah. Yep. yep. All right, thank you for that. All right, I too have a highlight, and it is a piece that appeared in The Atlantic this week by Derek Thompson. It's called Why Americans Suddenly Stopped Hanging Out. I don't know if it's that sudden, but uh, anyway, he gives a lot of these statistics that people may not uh, be familiar with. So, for example, in the late 1970s, more than half of 12th graders got together with their buddies almost every day. By 2017, only 28% do. So as we have seen, the the advent of the smartphone and the internet has uh, resulted. We think that this is the problem, that, that people are spending a lot more time alone, which means on screens and not with other people, seeing their faces being physically with them, touching them, smelling them, doing all the things that humans evolved over millennia to do with one another. And uh, now we're doing it less and less, and it is really taking a toll on our mental health. I highly recommend the piece. He recommends that we, you know, just as we have learned that In this modern age where we have all the calories we could ever want and our biggest problem now is fighting obesity because we weren't evolved for this kind of an environment and we have to learn how to take care of our bodies. We have to learn how to take care of our social cells too because we didn't evolve for this kind of atomized existence where we spend so much time alone and not with others. And I think this piece summarizes a lot of important uh, sociological research that's been coming down the pike uh, in recent years and gives insight into things like teen depression and other problems that we're having as a, as a society and not just us, but but around the developed world. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Chris Saliza, and of course the regular panel. I also want to mention our great producer, Jim Swift, and our sound engineer, Jonathan Siri, and of course our listeners and now viewers on YouTube. Thank you very much. If you can recommend us or give us a rating, that apparently activates the magic algorithms that then causes it to be recommended to other people. And then the word gets out and more people watch and it's all great. So if you could do that, we'd be indebted to you. And we will return next week as every week.